Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the people behind the positions in our public conversations. I'm interested in the deep values that drive the people that I talk to. The unconscious ethics or instincts we're all often living by, but rarely have space to talk about. So easy. I hope this isn't just me. I find it too easy to see people different from me in their job or their politics or their race or their gender or their religion and make all kinds of assumptions about where they're coming from and how they see the world. I do this. Maybe I'm the only one. I would guess not. And I really want to learn not to do that. I want to have more curiosity and more empathy in these increasingly divided times. And so every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or platform from different backgrounds and positions on all manner of the different spectrums that we manage to disagree and fight about on. I try and understand their story, get a sense of where they've come from, the principles that they're trying to live by, and what they've learned about dealing with disagreement in more life-giving ways. During the interview, I try, I do sometimes fail with a very long question, but I try and just shut up and listen to center the guest to attend deeply to them. But I needed somewhere to put all my thoughts that I am reliably having as they speak. And so at the end of the interview, you can hear some reflections from me on what they've said and and what I've learned. So please do stay tuned for that. In this series, you can explore episodes um, from Bake Off Judge and novelist Prue Leith, documentary producer Rowan Deacon, journalist Satnam Sanghera, barrister turned farmer Sarah Langford, writers Paul Kingsnorth and Dante Stewart, artist Jonathan Pajot, Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Great Britain Zara Mohammed, and editor of Vice UK Zing Seng. You can also go and explore our back catalogue and The thing we often do, I think, with podcasts is we scan down the list and we think, oh, I like them, I'll listen to them, or oh, they sound like they're just like me, I'll listen to them. I would encourage you to both do that because everyone needs just to listen to something lovely and fun um, every now and then, but also to maybe have a listen to people who are different from you or who are from groups or positions or points on the various spectrums, spectra write in and tell me, um, that are different from you because I hope what you'll hear will enrich you, will help you build empathy and maybe give you a little sense of the world widening as well. As is traditional, I need to now ask you if you would be willing to rate the podcast, to leave us a little review even, or to share it with someone and hit subscribe if you haven't yet subscribed and then you'll get all the new episodes directly into your podcast app. I want to say a big thank you actually for the most recent reviews which have warmed my heart. Tiny Little Fish is the name, uh, JDH Cave, Elizabeth Clare and Bradley, whoever you are, I know nothing about you, but your encouragement that what we're making as a team is nuanced and thoughtful and soulful and changing the way you think about people and the world is just manner for me. Sometimes it could be a bit lonely, honestly, just speaking uh, into a microphone alone in my room. So I love it when you talk back at me. And you can do that also on Twitter and Instagram. There are sacred accounts. I have personal accounts in this day and age. You will be able to find what you need very, very quickly. So please go do that. Meanwhile, in this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Satnam Sanghera. 
Sanam is a journalist on The Times. He's an award-winning memoirist and novelist, and his latest book, Empire Land, has been garlanded with plaudits. We spoke about his childhood in Wolverhampton, his Sikhism, which he is in the process of reclaiming, I think, and being more prepared to speak about publicly uh, the abuse and racist vitriol he receives online and what he is learning about colonialism. I really enjoyed listening and I hope you do too. Satnam, I am going to kick off not with your classic interview question about how your typical day unfolds, which is a lovely, gentle way of easing <laughs> someone into an interview, um, but with something much more difficult to get hold of and access. And it always feels like, you know, right at the start there, your brain is just warming up and that's okay. But it's what is sacred to you? What might your sacred values be? And you can really take that in whatever direction that you like. The thinking behind it is that in public life, when we see people with positions engaging often in this sometimes quite divisive or fraught public conversations, we assume everyone's starting from where we're starting Mm -hmm. and deliberately transgressing our values, the things that we hold sacred or are just, you know, uh, bad faith actors. My theory is that for most people, we are functioning even semi-consciously on a set of values, on a thing, set of things that are sacred to us, um, but they're often very different from other people's. And if we understand them better, we might build a bit more understanding and empathy. And I just think it's an interesting question to reflect on. So having had a small amount of warning, <laughs> what bubbled up for you as what might be some things that you hold sacred or a sacred value for you? Yeah, I guess I came up with one mundane thing and one probably more profound thing. Give me the The mundane thing is um, I've never believed in cool. I've never believed in being cool or being part of a gang or going along with what the majority think. Um, I think at school it was basically a desire not to be part of a gang. And... For me, it was about music in that everyone was into indie music in the 90s, like one of the Wonder stuff and uh, Ned's Atomic Dustbin. And I hated that stuff. I was really into pop music and soul music. And I felt no desire to pretend I was into it. So I remember I had a folder with uh, pictures of Mariah Carey and George Michael on it, and which is deeply uncool. But I remember having like stand-up arguments with my friends about why Mariah Carey was better than the Wonder Stuff. Something I'd stand by, by the way. And uh, I think I've continued in that vein of uh, saying what I believe and being myself and not necessarily going along with a gang. Do you have a sense of where you get that from? Lots of people would envy that strength of character. It's not necessarily a good thing, I don't think. You know, I think it can be... I sometimes wish I'd gone along with the crowd a bit more and actually I might have had more fun. If I'd gone along to those indie gigs, you know, which everyone else was doing. I was always... I have heard of your bands. I haven't heard of those bands. So, you know, see, history history told the tale that you were right. Yeah, but equally, I was probably a bit lonely as a kid. Mm. You know, I was always uh, um, doing my own thing. It comes very obviously from my mother, who um, is a very strong-minded and incredible character. Who I sometimes feel like having her as a mother is a bit like having... Nelson Mandela as a father in that she's so heroic and she's been through so much and it's so inspiring and it's had to be her own person that 
she's kind of taught me to be the same, really. Yeah. You said you had one other thing. I guess the more serious thing is that I was going through all the things I've done in my life and career, and there's a definite thread of wanting to compromise. Or you know, rather than being ideological, ideologically pure about trying to have conversations with people you disagree with and try to talk things out. So I think that's the case with my journalism being on the Times. I have to share the newspaper with people I violently disagree with, who I would probably cross the room to avoid. But I still stay there and try to have it out. I think it's true in my writing on Empire. I think it's true in relation to the campaigning work I've done in terms of diversity and so on. And it's probably true in relation to my family in that rather than just go off and do my own thing, I stayed there and had terrible conversations for quite a long time and brought them along with me, which is a very painful process, but ultimately rewarding. I wonder if there are times in your life where you felt like that was under pressure. Do you remember feeling like actually it would serve me better or I would earn more money or it would be more successful if I was prepared to actually just pick a side to be a bit less centrist, or centrist maybe isn't the right word, but mm. seeking to understand. I think centrist is a good way of putting it. I, I do feel like I'm a, a centrist dad without being a dad. I didn't want to insult you. I yeah, it, but I am great. a centrist. You claim it. I'm totally a centrist, and it's such an uncool thing to be at the moment. Um, there's been loads of times when I wish I didn't have to, I wasn't like that, you know. Um, when it came to my family and telling them I wasn't going to marry a city girl and do the, or the arranged marriage thing and stay in Wolverhampton. You know, I went along with that for 10 years, if not longer. It was only after a very long process of writing my memoir and coming out to them, as it were, that I finally told them what I think. Mm. And now it's like we never had the conversation. You know, it's like, it's just taken for granted by my nephews and nieces. Mm. All this stuff that actually... I had to fight hard to get my family to agree to. Um, I definitely feel it's easier on Twitter to be ideologically pure. I mean, I get trolled a lot by every, lots of different people, but I get trolled most by the Corbynistas. Um, and I've never, I'm not even a member of the Labour Party. It's just because a few years ago, I signed a letter, um, not really thinking about it, saying that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't fit to be Prime Minister on the grounds of his anti-Semitism. I've had death threats and uh, trolling from the right wing, but it's nothing compared to the stuff I've got from the left. And it started again when Empire Land came out because their view was, how dare Satnam claim to be an anti-racist or claim to have anything to say about Empire when he stopped, single-handedly stopped, Jeremy Corbyn, the most anti-racist politician in British history from becoming Prime Minister. I'm now thinking, what... In, in my kind of anthropology of the sacred, Jeremy Corbyn is functioning in the worst possible way as something sacred because it, is, it becomes a kind of idol to be protective against. Jesus Christ. I mean, people do think he is, he's godlike and a messianic figure. And I've, they look at me and they think I'm compromised. I work yeah. for the Times. You know, I've been photographed with people at parties who are right wing. And, you know, I've... I've thought out loud on Twitter and thought, oh, maybe my colleague has a point about this thing I'm not, I don't really you know, understand. And uh, nowadays you have to be pure. Yeah, we will definitely come back to that mm. because it is um, one of my key interests. But I want to wind you back in time to get a sense of um, 
your childhood, and you've written a lot about this, but maybe not for a while, and particularly the the formative ideas that were in the air. Some people's are political, some people's are philosophical, some people's are religious. I'll let you uh, narrate that however you like. What were those big ideas for you? Well, I was, I was a very religious child. I had, uh, you know, I was a Sikh and I had uncut hair. My mum had really found God in a big way just before she had me and saw me as this kind of gift from God. <laughs> so your older brothers <laughs> had cut hair? Yeah, my dad had cut hair. Wow. I mean, I was the like raised as this religious experiment within a not massively religious extended family. Wow! And uh, I was very religious. You know, I really believed in it. And you know, I would pray every day. We go to the temple three or four times a week. Would spend six hours every Sunday there. On a birthday, as a special treat, my mum would make, wake me up at half three in the morning because it was my birthday, and take me to the temple. And then I would clean the floors for three or four hours before going to school and exactly what you wanted she would actually I did want it I I loved it I felt like it was I really believed in it and I actually think there's something beautiful about it now about this thing thinking you know there's something beyond the self and I remember serving food I mean there were white people in the temple quite often because Sikh temples or somewhere where you, you can get free food and I remember from the youngest age feeding these homeless people and being told it was a good thing, and I, I think it was a good thing. Maybe the amount of time wasn't good. I could have learned a, a language or a musical instrument in that time. But it was very religious, and the thing is, the way in which, as you know, the way in which religion is imparted to you by elders and your parents, and what the religion actually re- represents in reality, can be two very different things. Yeah. I, do you mind just unpacking it a bit for me? I know you are not a spokesperson mm. for the Sikh community in any way, but a lot of listeners might not know a Sikh person. They might have done it at Ari, and they will probably remember the remember the ritual objects, the the um, uh, the five K's. Yeah, the, the sort of physical manifestation. But for whatever reason, that's what I retained. And then I went on to run a religion think tank and was like, ah, oh, there's a whole world of like some deep principles and ideas what what were you receiving in terms of key tenets of the faith um it's quite a new religion i think founded in around the 1600s uh it was born as kind of a an opposition to islam and the excesses of hinduism um it's quite liberated intellectually i guess sorry i mean to say it's liberal i guess in the sense that it believes that the caste system is evil it believes men and women are equal. It recognises other religions. Um, as a Sikh, the word means disciple. Uh, you follow the teachings of the ten gurus, who were ten human beings. They imparted all their wisdom in a holy book, which is called the Eleventh Guru, the Guru Granth Sahib. And uh, in theory, it's great. I think in the way that, in theory, lots of religions are great. But then they start representing the opposite. Because even though there's no, we don't believe in caste, Mm-hmm. And there's a big focus on equality, right? Yeah, a big focus on equality. We do actually have a caste system in the sense that you go to Wolverhampton, you'll find temples opposite each other for different castes. Mm-hmm. Uh, men and women are equal. Women are definitely, it's definitely patriarchal society. Women are treated worse. Um, yeah, we recognise other religions. But then again, you know, I grew up believing that if I married out, I would be disowned. And that's quite a common belief. Mm-hmm. Um, but It's complicated. And in terms of all the trolling I've had in my life, trolling from the Sikhs has been a thing. I've had death threats from the Sikhs, from certain Sikhs. 
early on because my memoir describes, uh, I guess, a kid slightly losing their faith, although my own position is complicated. But it does depict a kid cutting his hair, which is considered a sacrilegious act. And some Sikhs took that very personally. Mm. And I guess for some Sikhs, I'm a dangerous thing. Although I would say I am still Sikh. But that in itself could attract a lot of hate. How much was the haircutting about you know, your relationship with the divine, your relationship with your faith, and how much was it about other factors, do you think, as far as you can access at this late? Yeah, stage? I mean, I think that stage, I, I had a very Christian education. So I knew a lot about, I was studying the Bible really closely. I did RE for GCSE. I thought I was going to do theology for my for my degree, actually. And uh, by that stage, 14, I realised that my own religiosity and spirituality had very little to do with the outward marks of the religion, the long hair, the kara, which I still wear. Um, and actually, it was a personal thing. I think a lot of people get to that point. That mm. You've got your own relationship with God. Mm. And actually, after I had my hair cut, I probably became even more religious. Mm. It's just I didn't have the outward signs of it. And I just thought a lot of religion at that time, I felt, was all about the outward signs and not about the within. So yeah. that's how I felt about it. Um, I'm always aware when I ask about this kind of thing that it's almost more private than asking about someone's sex life. So please deflect if you wish. Yeah. But if you're happy to talk about practices and the meaning that your faith has for you now, I gather that quite, meditation is quite a big thing in, in Sikh life. Is that something yeah. that you practice? I do, but not in the ritualised way I used to do it. I mean, I would wake up and pray for half an hour before school every day. Don't do that. I mean, I could re still recite the beginning of the Guru Granth Sahib off by heart, and I sometimes do that. Um, but you're right, yeah, it's quite, I, I've never really, I haven't talked about this since my, my memoir, where I put forward quite a simplified view of what I actually feel about these things. And as I get older, I find myself going back to some of the things I really found reassuring and helpful when I was a kid. Mm. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am Sikh, but it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, I have this Gada, which I'm holding in my hand at, at the moment, um, it's made beautiful. for me. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? I see. And, it, and the inside. Is it okay to? I, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I had uh, one of the lines of Sikh scripture engraved on the inside very badly by a Wolverhampton <laughs> silversmith. <laughs> recognize, recognize the human race as one. Yeah, that's the line of the Guru Granth Sahib. And that, I think, is the ultimate, I would say, the ultimate philosophy of Sikhism, that, you know, people are the same. Mm. And I think it's a useful thing to have on my wrist to remind myself, you know, occasionally when we don't treat people as human beings. Yeah. You, know, you forget it. And I think that's not a bad way of approaching life. And, you know, when I was reading a lot about Christianity, I found so much common ground between... Sikhism as I felt it and Christianity as I felt it when I read, read the gospel. Yeah. There's a very funny uh, section in your memoir where you're talking about your London media life. And I think it was particularly kind of 90s, 2000s, Blairite high point of Islington <laughs> excesses, um, which are very funny about. But you talk about round the tables with those friends when you were in this you know, glamorous journalistic career, admitting that you might be at all religious was like admitting 
a tendency to paedophilia. But in when you went home to Wolverhampton, admitting any doubt or complexity or um, ambivalence around faith had the same effect on people. Do you think that's changed? Do you, you know, even I can, I always feel the tension when I ask the question, particularly for those with a public profile. Do you think we've got any better or worse about allowing space for people's deep and private metaphysical wrestlings? Or does it still feel Mm. as dangerous as admitting to something as awful as that? I feel like brown people are let off that a bit. In the media. I think you're right. I think brown people are allowed to be religious. I noticed that with sports stars a lot. Yeah. Lewis Hamilton will talk about God and Christianity, you know, and you'll see, you know, black um, athletes thanking God and they get away with it. Yeah, and rappers. Rappers all the time. And yet, when white people do it, they're like, like, oh, they're mad, aren't they? Yeah. They're mad. Um, I don't know how in the media world it goes, but I know that in my own life it's changed in the sense that my mother, who's very religious, is much more tolerant of ambiguity and doubt, mainly because her grandchildren are now all grown up and are way more irreligious than I am. I'm I'm very religious compared to them. And, and she tolerates them and she's given up on imposing a lot of the random rules that I struggled with. Like not eating meat for a random reason on Tuesday and Sunday. Like she'll tolerate us not doing that now. And uh, so I guess things have loosened up in my own family life. Mm. And I'd love to hit more about the things that I think are probably not directly um, theological, but I guess the sort of not quite the moral universe, more the emotional universe that comes through so strongly in your book. And I'm thinking um, in your memoir, I'm thinking about things like your your mum had very strong rituals when you came home and you said something fascinating about not wanting to stand out because from your kind of childhood, if you, if you were too successful, it would, you know, it would be slightly dangerous. It would feel like that is, that is risking some kind of um, terrible encounter. Could you unpack some of that for me? Yeah. um, You know, when you're a child of immigrants in a, you know, a country that doesn't practice, practice religion, it's very hard to separate what's religious and what is just, your parents' weirdnesses <laughs> yes. and what is superstition. Yeah. And so for me, it was all, all packed into the area of religion. And actually, it was just my parents' idiosyncrasies or cultural things. So, for example, the what you just referred to was what a lot of cultures call the evil eye. Mm. And you'll see those evil eye kind of ornaments, you know, on the wall, those mm. blue eyes to ward off evil in... You go to an Egyptian's house, they'll and have Turkey, them. The they Turkey have, have them, yeah. yeah. And that's quite a common thing around the world, the idea that you don't want to attract anyone's envy because hmm. then you'll attract the evil eye. It's the whole idea of putting, you know, putting a mark on a beautiful baby's face, you know, putting a bit of charcoal or something on their face so it's imperfect. I don't know, have you come across I, that before? Only in your book. I oh, was okay. intrigued. I find that it's quite common in Jewish culture, it's African cultures. So that is just superstition, I guess, and which I probably meld together with religion, um, weirdly. But then there's all the rituals, which um, were just really intense as a kid. And I still do some of them. Like my mum wouldn't allow one shoe to sit on another shoe. Right? This morning I unpacked all my shoes because I'm moving. And I went through the mall and put them all next to each other. 
just cannot stand on another shoe because it makes me bring bad luck. I can't stand seeing money on the floor, like putting your foot on money. It feels really dis- like unres- unrespectful. Um, so some of those things have stayed with me, um, but most of them I've slowly shed. And it's always a bit of a shock when you talk to your siblings or your nephews and nieces, and they've given up on, given up on them years ago because mm. it's so um, inconsistent. Mm. I still don't eat beef. I mean, if you go into the whole question of whether Sikhs should eat beef or not, that, oh, my God, that is such a complicated subject. But let's just say for cultural reasons, we weren't allowed to eat beef as kids. And I've kept to it. I still do. I've eaten beef once by accident. <laughs> yeah. um, your, metaf- your description of the one time you ate beef as being like getting a punch in the mouth was so vivid. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so, I was like, oh, yes, it is. Like blood and tongue. <laughs> it was yes. really quite. I like beef, but maybe I won't now. <laughs> I still don't eat beef. But it turns out my brother does. And I think most of my nephews and nieces, apart from one of my nieces, do too. And I found that so odd that I still do that and they don't. But this is what happens when you're children of immigrants. You absorb the culture through just one person, my mother. Mm. And it's so irregular the way you adopt things and it, none of it makes much sense. Yeah. But I think that's probably a universal thing. You know, we're all, if you grow up in a religious household, you assume your parents' version of the religion is the version. Yeah. And you're shocked when you, it's not. Yeah. As I was reading and listening to you, sometimes for reasons I now better understand, being finding it quite difficult to talk about your Sikhism in public, I was reminded, and Christians really do this, and I hate that they do it, our tendency as communities of belonging and tribes, right, to be so excited when someone in public feels like, you know, it's like, represent, and we want to stick a flag in them, right, and be like, you're one of us, you're a Christian, you're a Sikh, you're a football fan, you know, you're a vegetarian, whatever it is. But the pressure on the person in public being seen as that, I think is, can, can be enormously difficult. I understand much better now why people are pretty private about those things because they neither want to disappoint nor bear the burden of being that person in public. Yeah, you're never going to be the right Sikh for a bunch of different people, right? Yeah. I actually stopped even saying I Sikh for a while, but I'm now reclaimed it and said, yeah, I am Sikh. And um, just because it doesn't fulfill your idea of Sikh, you know. But the problem is if you're one of the first, you become a representative. Because when my memoir came out, I don't think there were any other memoirs written by Sikhs at all. Mm. And um, people began reading my book as a, a representative comment on the community. Sikhs did. So I got letters from people saying, how dare you say that you did this as a Sikh family? I don't do this. And it's like, well, it's not about the Sikh community experience. This is what it was like for me. Every community goes through this. Mm. And eventually there's so many memoirs and so many public versions that people realise it's yeah. just a version. Yeah. Unfortunately, if you're one of the first, you get all the flack. Yeah. That sounds hard. Yeah, but I see other people do it. Like I see people from like the Hasidic Jewish community writing books, and that's hard because mm. then they're representatives. Um, a friend of mine is gay Muslim. Mm. He's written a memoir about it. Beautiful book called A Dutiful Boy. You know, he's now seen as a representative of yeah. being gay and Muslim, and that's difficult. So you grew up in this very loving, it sounds, home in Wolverhampton, um, influenced by this 
complicated and beautiful sounding um, Sikh family culture, at least, and then were the first in your family to move away and particularly to go to Cambridge. What was that experience like kind of emotionally and psychologically of, of forging that new path for yourself? Um, looking back, it was really exciting on one level. I'm so nostalgic for my 20s because it was so much fun. Everything was new. Every day was exciting. A new bit of London and all of it beyond my expectations. But it was also incredibly stressful and emotionally difficult. I associate Cambridge with just intense homesickness. Mm. I I went there recently and um, even now, as soon as I arrive in Cambridge, I feel that homesickness is all back just because I felt like that all the way through it. And my family didn't make it easy. Even my my mother still apologises to me about this because now all her grandchildren have gone to university and she looks back and thinks about, about how she cried every time I came home for three years, <laughs> you know, and how difficult they made it for me because they made me feel like I was betraying them somehow and um, I wasn't. I was just down the road. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah, it was really difficult. And then, obviously, there was the whole thing about dating someone unsuitable and the whole secret life thing, which feels like, a, I mean, it was 20 years ago. Yeah, It feels like a long time ago, but occasionally I get flashbacks into what it was like. And I basically made my life, it was very compartmentalised. So, you know, when I was at home, I was at home. And when I was working, I was working. And if, as long as I could forget the other world existed, I was all right. Mm. But the moment they crossed over in any way, it was so stressful. And um, I think, I mean, I had therapy in my 30s, which made me realise how much damage it caused me. In your 20s, you had this very, I mean, I gather it wasn't particularly easy to get there directly from Cambridge. You did like 300 job applications, but you did eventually land a job on the FT. And then we're writing um, very good, very mainstream journalism for a long time. What was the thread you were following then? Kind of what was, what did it feel like a sense of vocation? What was driving you? What were you, what were the ideas you were excited about covering in that period? Yeah, I mean, this is a question all writers, especially the young ones, um, have to work out what is it they want to do. And I, I think when you're a news reporter, which is the way a lot of writers begin, you have to think about what excites you. Are you excited about breaking a news story, getting a scoop? Or is it the fact that you've got a joke into the intro and lots of people have left and found it amusing? And I found that that was what <laughs> motivated me, is that if I put a funny quote, or someone mentioned in a funny intro to me, I can see what I was doing. I was feeling my way, trying to get a sense of where I was. Mm. And I was trying to find the thing that I really needed to write about, which was there, but it was so locked away because mm. <laughs> of my controlled life that it didn't occur to me that I could write about it. Yeah. And it took someone else to basically force me to do it. I want to go into that in a second, but first I want to ask because you have said somewhere that you voted for all the main political parties and you said already that you're you're not a kind of head-banging oh, yeah, ideologue. That, when I say that on the, I've said that on Twitter, I get that <laughs> thrown back to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not throwing Satnam it back to you. has voted conservative. <laughs> he must be um, locked away. But do, I am how, quite, anyway, let's not go into that. Yeah. Yes, I well, am. I'm a floating voter, basically. Yeah. And that makes sense from what you said. How much do you think that is a temperamental thing and how much do you think that is... 
lots of my friends who are journalists, and I worked at the BBC on programs like The Moral Race for a while, which just involved me being able to put myself in the best version of each argument, like repeatedly, day after day, week after week, which is why I now think that I struggle to know what I think about most political things. And the FT, you know, is is quietly default politically somewhere, but likes to wear it very lightly, right? How much do you think that was formative in your feeling of not having a political home? I think it goes back to the fact that I am fundamentally unclubbable. <laughs> you know, I've no, I don't like being part. School has no part of a gang. I don't like groups of men. I don't like having... I don't like being part of a group. I like the idea that I belong to something, the idea of it. So I like the idea my family exists in Wolverhampton. And I, I love seeing them for 36 hours. I love the idea I work for the Times, but God, I don't want to be work there all the time at all. Yeah. Um, so I like the idea of belonging to something, but not it not taking over my whole identity. I like the idea of being, of being independent and free. I think freedom is the thing I it's taken me a lot of time to realise is what I've been after. In my book and the TV adaptation, my conclusion in it is vaguely that, you know, I want to marry someone of my own choosing. Actually, what I didn't realise is I just want to be left alone. You know, I just want to be free. You know, that's what, it took me a long time to realise that. And I think that that kind of feeling explains a lot of, of my life choices. But you have made editorial choices that have not made that more likely as you were saying I was I was thinking on the way here that my friends who are writers and journalists and people of color in some ways the dream is just to be able to write about the things that they're interested in and not have to have their identity or if you know if they're um disabled you know it, the, I, and I was on the way here, I was like I'm going to interview a brown person about colonialism and I'm just like am I just perpetuating these ridiculous patterns but you you were in a position where you're writing about politics and economics and all kinds of things and then did step away from that job at the FT to write your memoir what was the who who was the person who told you you alluded to them so tantalizingly it was my then agent my late agent Kate Jones and my editor Mary Mount who's still my editor basically they were like I mean I was telling them about my life I didn't really tell them all the details because I hadn't really faced up to it myself about my dad and stuff and my sister. And they were like, you've got to write this. And the um, thing is, as you say, in the FT and at Oxbridge, everything is about um, not emphasising yourself. It's mm. about deleting the self mm. and being intellectual, right? And the FT is totally about that. I think they are. they weren't comfortable with... They didn't encourage you to do first-person pieces at all. So it took me a lot of time to unlearn that. And it's a bit of a surprise that now almost everything, not everything, but most of my stuff has a memoir, autobiographical element. And I think uh, that's probably because people keep asking me to do it. Hmm. But also I've realised it's a really powerful way of making people read about stuff they wouldn't normally read about and bring them into it. So it definitely helped with schizophrenia. I mean, I think people would normally pick up a book about schizophrenia. It's one of the most depressing subjects around. But if you make it autobiographical and funny, people do. And the same thing with British Empire. I think I wouldn't, like five years ago, have picked up a book about British Empire. I think lots of my readers probably wouldn't have. But making it a bit personal means you get them. 
you hook them in, right? Yeah, it's just good communications instincts, just I guess. Just communication, isn't it? Um, I still have quite a lot of self-loathing about doing it. I often file pieces to the Times and my editor will send them back and go, need some more about you, of, your, of yourself in this. Mm. And you know what? She's almost always right. Yeah. I was going to ask this later about how you deal with the racism and the division, but maybe I'll ask it now because I think it's relevant, which is how do you steady yourself? And I'm sure your kind of religious practice is part of that. But more broadly, how how do you kind of keep emotionally healthy enough to be someone in public who's continually offer, offering a little bit of yourself as a sacrifice and then often receiving just like a backwash of bile via the internet in your face? It's a good question. I think I've probably got all sorts of coping mechanisms now. Um, and they vary according to the amount of shit and what kind it is. Mm. It doesn't all, sometimes it doesn't get to me at all. Mm. If it's just anonymous racists saying something in response to something I've said on radio, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. It's when it gets quite personal. It's when I'm not even writing about imperialism, say on the Times, I've written a jokey column about wind farms, for instance, and there's a, a stream of racist hate huh. written about me, you know. Then I remember coming across that once on a Monday morning. And then I had to report the comments. The moderator rang me and said, oh, we're sorry. What Should we ban this person? Turned out they'd been banned before. And so I had to go into a whole debate about... This is on the Times website. Yeah, a whole debate about what we should do about repeat offenders. And before I knew it, it was 12 o'clock. Like three hours of my morning had gone Yeah, because of this racist idiot. Yeah. saying something in response to a column about wind farms. Yeah. And that I say, this is what racism does. It takes up your time. Yeah. It stops you from competing with your colleagues or other people on level terms because you're, you're battling this endless crap. Um, but sometimes it energizes me. Sometimes when I get those letters, it means that you're doing the right thing. Mm. I also get loads of letters from people who say, uh, I didn't agree with you and I changed my mind. Thank you. And I don't, I probably don't post those letters because it'd be narcissistic, but... You're too British. Yeah, and it's, yeah, exactly. It'd be a very un-British thing to do. But it gives you energy, you know, and I prefer writing for the Times for that reason because I know I could get a sense of the audience that some of them agree with me, lots of them don't, mm. and maybe I'm changing people's minds. And if I was on The Guardian, I'd maybe be preaching to the Conservative... Sorry, I may be, I'll be preaching to the converted and then again, a load of corbanistas yeah. who would hate me for other reasons. Yeah. So tell me about Empire Land. How much was, how much was it triggered by those direct experiences of personal racism and how much was it an intellectual quest? I think it was basically going to India and realising I didn't know anything about British Empire and the average man on the street does. And I knew so little and... It's quite a difficult subject to find accessible books. And I just started asking people about what I should read. And I started reading, taking notes with no particular mission mm. and just following my reading. And then I guess it's one of those things is that if you feel like you don't know about something, it often turns out that lots of people don't know about it. Mm. And if you're a writer, you have the gift of being able to bring people with you on your education. Yeah. Yeah. I think we forget that when you started writing, it was not really a thing. It was so not a thing. I remember when 
I did a reading from it quite early on at a friend's thing, a literary event. And three or four people came up to me afterwards, utterly bemused by what they were like, what is it? Is it like you're doing history now? Is it a memoir? But I mean, it didn't make no sense. Yeah. Felt like a very dusty subject. Yeah. And they just, it, as a literary form, it didn't really exist. You know, it's kind of, what is it? It's like reverse history with a memoir element. But it's just, it worked out, I guess, in the end. And your, have I understood this right, that your parents arrived in Wolverhampton around the same time as Enoch Powell's Rither of Bud speech? Yep. How yeah. is that, did you know that? Is it part of their their imagination of their arrival? Something I found out when I was writing my novel, which is set in the 60s, and I just realised that actually my parents came almost exactly the time he was making his speech. Also, I realised that his speech, having read it, was about Sikhs. <laughs> it was about the Sikh community in Wolverhampton. It was about people like my parents and people like me, you know, who arrived at school not being able to speak English. I mean, in the 1970s, I was amazed at the number of local newspaper stories that were about how kids couldn't speak English when they arrived at school, about how in Wolverhampton there were so many Punjabi kids that the white kids started speaking Punjabi. That was one of the stories brought about by Enoch Pal. Mm. He made the national press. Mm. And I was one of those kids. I arrived at school not being able to speak English. Mm. We now know, actually, the kids that arrive with no English speak two languages do better. And actually, they raise the standards of it, all the kids around them. It actually is a wonderful thing, right? Yeah. But there's still that narrative that actually immigrants who aren't integrating, who aren't in English, are destroying our children's education. But it's amazing how these myths become deeply entrenched. Yeah. But yeah, my parents arrived around then. And I mean, I was never taught any of that because I think you know, my dad um, can't read or write and uh, my mom at the time couldn't speak English, but she now can and can understand it. But we didn't have any time for politics. Never yeah. talked about it. Yeah. Your one of your big section titles is We Are Here Because You Were There. And I asked a question about, you know, was personal racism the trigger for you exploring colonialism? And actually I think for some listeners, the link between those two things isn't immediately obvious. Could you unpack the kind of thesis of that section for me? Yeah, it's just basically the idea, the reason we're a very multiracial society and um, multicultural is because we had a very multicultural empire. The British Empire, biggest empire in human history. Biggest thing Britain ever did over four or five hundred years. We don't teach it particularly well or talk about it enough. But that essentially is why we're a, a multiracial society. And, you know, we've had two major racist crises in my working life. It was Stephen Lawrence murder, mm-hmm. followed by the inquiry, the Windrush scandal, followed by the inquiry. Both inquiries said we need to teach our kids more about why we're a multicultural society. Hmm. We need to teach empire. And in both cases, both cases, pretty much ignored. So this is what happens. We have these crises. We have a report. Nothing is done. We just fundamentally can't face up to the fact that we are brown because we colonised large parts of India and Africa. And... Uh, we much prefer seeing ourselves as the country that won World War II alone. Yeah. Without the help of the Americans, uh, without the help of empire. Yeah. The tens of thousands of brown people who died for this country. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a deep-seated amnesia. I don't buy it. Whenever anyone says 
or implies that empire was all bad mm. or all good. Yeah. I, I kind of bristle. Yeah. Because my, hopefully, the bigger message is, look, we need to just understand this history mm. based on evidence yeah. rather than viewing it through the prism of our feelings. Yeah. Rather than seeing it as a source of pride or, sh- or shame. Yeah. Because if you approach it with that, you're not going to weigh up the evidence in a dispassionate, intellectual way, are you? You sound ever so Financial Times. Yes, centrist, exactly. Yeah, and it's, it's difficult making that argument sometimes with left-wing people who are there saying, you know, yes, you're right, Satnam, empire is racist and all evil. And actually my point is, actually, it was really white supremacist for probably about a century. It wasn't so bad during the early days of East India Company when white men went to India and, you know, married Indian wives and inter- sort of integrated. It went through different phases. And... Even though, it is, you know, the th- a third of it is bibliography and references, you have and have been awarded the, you know, the prizes to show how careful it is as history and evidence. But even given that and the kind of acclaim from unexpected places, you know, the Telegraph, um, there is still, you are still obviously receiving such a lot of abuse, accusations of disloyalty, ingratitude, you know, straight out racist abuse. What, what, why, where do those feelings come from? Why is it so hard not to feel a personal stake in this for Mm. people who, who feel they're British? I think when you're talking about empire, there's a lot of people in Britain whose families were involved in it. Mm. So it's personal, you know, it was such a massive project over so many centuries I would say almost the majority of families have some connection to it, either as a colonizers or, even more painfully, the colonized. So immediately you're in a world of pain. Yeah. And if you're a brown person like David Yolisoga or me, pointing out sometimes bad things happen, like genocides and white supremacy, um, that's a difficult thing for some white people to hear. Mm. Because... I think it means fundamentally they have to accept that we're here on equal terms. And if they do that, they've got to give up some of their privilege. Mm. Basically, you're challenging the way Britain has always worked and mm. who has the power. And that is a, a really unsettling thing for people. So they fight it, which is why this government has launched a massive culture war and empire. You, know? yeah. you had a lovely line, which I felt was very humane. You said, I love my country and I want to believe the best of it. And acknowledging... You know, I think it comes up and it relates to all the other conversations about tribalism and division, that our desire to belong and to feel part of something strong and safe is so deep in us and so, you know, primary and Mm. pre-rational that it is very difficult to have the emotional stability to be able to say, you know, I love my family and it caused trauma. I love my nation Mm. and it was white supremacist. And we're constantly triggering each other into fight or flight as a nation and creating the conditions whereby it's incredibly difficult to get to that, you know, mm. just like sit with the pain and let it pass <laughs> through you yeah. and look at the complexity of histories. Do you have hopefulness about what can help us navigate these so painful, tender, mm. angry seams of ideas? Yeah, I do actually feel quite optimistic. Partly because other countries are going through similar things. 
and they've managed to navigate them. So Germany is a great example. Mm. You know, it's returning some, some of its own colonial loot, let alone the amazing ways in, in which it confronted World War II history. France is doing really inspiring stuff. Even America is doing quite inspiring stuff. It's having conversations about reparations. Mm. So it is possible. Australia is doing some interesting stuff too. Um, and secondly, I feel optimistic because of young people. And I think young people really care about colonial history. And, you know, I've had such a response from from young people to this book. And they want to know they're the most racially diverse generation in British history. They are getting their education from other places if, they, if they're not getting it at school, either through books, Instagram, whatever. And I feel you can't fight that. I think society is becoming liberal, more enlightened. And I mean, even the surveys show that as a whole, the British population are keen on this, being taught up to our kids. I think 75% of British people told a recent of survey that it was a good idea to teach kids about colonialism and slavery. Mm. You'd never guess that from reading the newspaper. <laughs> you really wouldn't. You know, and so it's a niche culture war being fought by a certain breed of right-wing, conservative, telegraph-reading white men. Mm. With a few brown people thrown in. Yeah. <laughs> And I want to finish on a question um, to hopefully leave listeners feeling a bit equipped to be part of the solution, not part of the problem to some of these things. And you have navigated differences and disagreement around class, around race, around religion, and are, as you said, someone who's committed to trying to listen and to compromise. What are the things that help? What make it, what does it make? What are the things that make it easier for us to see each other as fully human across our differences and disagreements and to stay in enough of a relationship that our society can actually sustain itself? I think the key thing is not to communicate over social media. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I think social media is at the heart of all this. But we're both clearly Twitter addicts. It's how we've been communicating by DM. I've also made a lot of friends. Yeah, me too. I do Twitter. like it. A lot it. of friends from Twitter. Um, but just any argument on Twitter escalates immediately. And actually, if you talk to someone, and I've met some of my trolls, and they almost always turn out to be, turns out to be something about them which you like. Yeah. I mean, there's one guy I met for my last documentary. It, was, it wasn't broadcast, and he's been my most persistent troll. And not only did I like him, I went out and read some of his books, which weren't to do with history, and really, really liked them. And now I just mute him on, on social media so we don't have arguments. And I see him getting angry in the same way. He still trolls you after you met not him? Not me, but he gets angry right. with other people. Right. But because we've met, we don't do it to each other. And it was just that one meeting yeah. that changed things. And I think as much as possible, we need to look people in the eye and have com have conversations rather than doing it on the basis of, of what you found out about them on the internet or what they're saying on it. Yeah. Satnam Sangera, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. Well, there was so much in there. I, um, I was writing something somewhere else recently and I wrote, I'm done with cool. Nope, that's not true. <laughs> I want to be done with cool. I want to stop getting my head turned 
by that nonsense and instead pursue wisdom. And so it was like a little, lovely little reminder to me in those opening um, few minutes when Satnam says he doesn't believe in cool. He just doesn't care. Really, really doesn't. He was prepared to be the guy in his school who listened to pop music when all his friends were listening to indie music. I just loved it. I really enjoyed how he spoke about his mother. Uh, I'd love to meet her. This sense of a, a Trojan, really, a woman who has uh, struggled against such hardship. Um, we didn't really talk about the fact that there's really serious um, mental health issues in Satnam's family, um, poverty, real challenges that she's gone through. And the fact that he sees the influence that she has had on him of helping him be himself and um, not be swayed by what's cool or by peer pressure was really beautiful. And I sort of know I should, whenever I speak to someone with a really large public voice who receives a lot of abuse and trolling and death threats, I was going to say I should be used to it, but actually, no, I don't want to be used to it. I don't want it to be normal that people trying to speak in public, and let's be honest, this can, this could be any of us, us now, right? The The potential for a public platform is there for many of us if we, you know, pursue it hard enough. And um, and actually, for some some people, it comes about, you know, it's thrust upon them. And the fact that it is now normal for people to receive slews of death threats and abuse just is really not okay. And I don't know why we've accepted it as normal. And I wish we hadn't. I really liked how Satnam spoke about Sikhism and a sense of reclaiming it. it was real privilege actually to see his bangle it was beautiful and that line about recognize humanity as the same um or as one i can't remember exactly what it was one feels more apt than the same um but yeah there was a, a tenderness and a dignity about his faith and it was lovely to sort of get a little um snapshot of someone on a on a journey of reclaiming that language and of um, being ha more prepared to talk about it in public. I um, It cracked me up, as you heard, about brown people being allowed to be religious. I really feel that I had a lovely brief back and forth with um, Lizzie Damalola Blackburn. I hope I've got her name right, um, who wrote a great book called Yinka, Where Is Your Husband?, which is um, a really funny sort of rom-com novel set in Peckham, uh, where, near where I live. And um, it, the protagonist is a Christian and it's just very normal and not, and it's a very mainstream book being read all over the place. And um, uh, I do think it, it, it helps sometimes the way we code faith. We're slightly less scared of it if someone um, has brown skin and um, it made me laugh. I think there was an astuteness about how Satnam, the H was a um, spelling mistake, apparently Satnam, spoke about self-loathing, actually self-loathing in writing personally, that he's still so formed by a type of journalism. And I see this in academia as well, which says, you know, delete the self, remove the self from everything. Real intelligence is depersonalized, dehumanized. And he and many others in many fields are realising that, one, that's impossible to do, and it's it's a lie in some ways. 
Um, and two, it doesn't really connect with people. It doesn't communicate very well that we're interested in people and we are much more able to take in facts and information, most of us, um, if we have a sense of where the speaker is coming from and the story that they are telling and what lenses they see the world through. Obviously, it can go too far. and We can make everything um, personal and emotion-laden. And um, it was interesting also to hear Satnam talk about, let's look at colonialism without shame and without pride. Let's try and not have so many feelings about colonialism, but instead look at the facts. Um, it's not that I don't believe in facts. I do believe in facts. But I think the reason Empire Land works so well is he manages to thread that needle of saying, I am a Sikh, I have a p background and a position that changes how I see this story of the British Empire. And I am trying to um, be transparent about that and hold on to rigour with how I look at this history. It, as many things end up being, the wise course seems to be a kind of both and situation rather than an either or I think that's all I have to reflect on on this listen through. It feels like one of those I might listen to again because we covered a lot of ground. Um, but as always, it's just a joy to have someone, as someone put in a, a review on Apple Podcasts recently, actually, to have a public persona who starts in monochrome come into full colour. Um, and that's a beautiful thing and a privilege. And I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to The Sacred. You can find all our previous episodes on your favourite podcast platform. Why not go have a browse? Our production team is Daniel Turner and Lizzie Harvey. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey because she is multi-talented. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.